This podcast is supported by CJ Wildlife and the National Trust Garden Wildlife Range. For the love of nature. Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm Kate Martin, lead ranger in the Northwest. And in this episode, I'm going to be picking up lots of tips about bird watching. But as I'll discover, some of these avian residents have more metropolitan tastes when it comes to making their home. When you think of places synonymous with bird watching and avian encounters, I usually think of the sort of wide open wetlands of Wickham Fern or maybe the wooded valleys of the Lake District or even some nice rugged coastline somewhere like Cornwall. So when I was told I was going to be making a bird watching episode and the location was central Leeds, I was more than a little confused. But I'm currently headed towards the city centre to meet keen bird watcher Paul Wheatley, who tells me he has the perfect spot for a bit of early morning twitching. But to be honest, amongst the rubbish collections and the road sweepers and the early morning deliveries that you can hear going past as we speak, there's an odd pigeon and a gull bobbing around, but bird life here is pretty non-existent. And just ahead of me, though, there is a guy who just looks completely out of place. He stood on the side of the road with a puffer jacket and a flask of tea. I'm assuming that's got to be Paul Wheatley, so let's head over and see if it's him. Hello, you must be Paul. Hi, Kate. Good to meet you. Good to meet you too. You went exactly difficult to spot. So at the moment, obviously, a scope pointing at what appears to be nothing. I can't see anything at all up there. Actually, you've come to one of the best places in Leeds for a bit of urban birding. Really? Have a look at the screen. Oh, my word. Are they, I think they are. Peregrine falcon. <gasps> That's amazing. Fastest bird in the world. So why have they chosen to make Leeds their home? So out in the countryside, they'll nest on cliffs and craggy areas, but over the last 10 or 20 years, peregrines have been moving into cities and towns where they've got a plentiful supply of pigeons to eat. Here in Leeds, at the university, we've got the clock tower here. Up on the hill, overlooking the city centre, it's the highest place, and that's where the peregrines have chosen to come and nest. I suppose for a peregrine, it's just an inner-city crag. That's the location to look for them, high up. A good way to start is to just buy a pair of binoculars. That gets you straight into accessing what's out there to be able to see the birds well. To step up a little bit and go for a telescope, you can get a decent scope for a few hundred pounds. I'm really into phone scoping, and I combine that with the camera on my mobile phone. So with a little adapter, I can attach my phone to the scope, and then suddenly your iPhone's got a 70 times zoom, and that really transports you from ground level up to the level of the peregrine. I've got a replay here. So vivid, isn't it, when you can get that close? Oh, look at that. You can see every detail of the feather in the coloration. Absolutely wonderful. Did you hear that? Yes, I did. That's the falcon calling. Falcon's calling to the tersel, to the male. Can you see the falcon? I can. I can see it very clearly. And this is what's fantastic about an urban birding location. You can get really close. We've got the falcon now coming around now making a fantastic shape, this sort of jet fighter shape, swept back wings. They're unmistakable, aren't they? 
If you've got the optics, it's obviously great to be able to watch the peregrines from the street, but there are other ways that you can watch urban peregrines. So if you come with me, we can go and check it out. Oh, fantastic, let's go. So where are you taking me? Just around the corner to the engineering department. And here we are. Okay, this is Les Oculus. Hello, Les. Hello. So, I hear you're the person who's helped to make these peregrines famous. Yes, yes, yes. Ooh, wow, webcam. So this is live now. That's live. So we can see, I'm guessing this is the falcon, is it, on the nest? This is on four eggs. They're another two weeks and about three days before the hatch. Is she literally just laying directly onto those gravel? They make a little scrape. They sort of like lay down on it and kick the feet out backwards and just make a shallow depression. It must be a great relief when they hatch and you can actually see the youngsters in there. Well, they're incubating eggs. It's like about five weeks of not very much happens. <laughs> and then three will hatch within 24 hours. The last one will hatch a day later. Mm-hmm. This is the peregrine folder, is it? It is, yeah. These are great photos, aren't they? One little hatch. <laughs> they look like little white cotton wool balls of fluff. As it is, it's only about the size of a chicken's egg. Oh, so um, this is where they're starting to lose that white fluff and start yeah, getting their yeah. proper feathers through. Well, when they're fledging, they'll get big enough, they'll flap the wings, get stronger, they'll go off, and then hopefully <laughs> they'll fly off and make it across to a building or somewhere to land on. And if they don't? They end up on the ground. Oh, dear. So there's one time that really stands out. I had Paul ringing me up. So the first year they had breeding success was back in 2018, but they laid their eggs really late in the year. So it was into July before the birds actually fledged from the nest. And it was at that point that I found myself on duty. Les himself was unfortunately on holiday, and that was when the first peregrine fledged the nest. On this occasion, the peregrine ended up on a low building, but wasn't fed by the parents. The peregrine tried to build a bit of strength through the day, and I actually saw it take a second flight at about five o'clock that day. And it flew for the church spire just opposite the Parkinson building. It got about halfway up, and it crashed right into the side of the building, scrabbled with its talons, wasn't able to catch onto anything, and fell all the way to the ground. And immediately was up on its feet and was running towards the main road. So straight away I grabbed my telescope, ran across the road, just narrowly avoiding getting knocked down and managed to get between the peregrine and the road. And with quite a few other people, we sort of corralled the peregrine around the corner away from the road. I knew that the peregrine needed to go up on the roof. There's a lot of urban foxes in the area, so it was a real sort of welfare situation. Straight away I was on the phone and I talked to Les and Les said, There's a box I left through security. Throw something over his head, calm it down, put it in the box and get them to go up onto the roof and just let it out. They were the words of encouragement I needed. When we got up on the roof of the Parkinson building, you want to be really careful. So the worst situation is to release the peregrine from the box and spook the bird and straight away it's off the roof and on the ground again. Just try to really take our time to gradually open the box and let the peregrine just wander out, giving it lots of space. Straight away, the bird went up onto a perch on the side of the building, at which point you know everything's OK. This is not things the public should be doing. You should be getting a qualified person to do it. It was just the welfare of the bird, the time, the location. And Paul, he was being guided by qualified people to actually do it safely. 
the camera's a great thing breeding because we don't have to disturb them. We can watch it all remotely where it is and great thing for public engagement. And it is the most popular university webpage, apparently. That doesn't surprise me, actually. There's just something so wonderful about seeing wildlife like that. And they're so beautiful, aren't they? Oh, yeah. They're just beautiful birds. Inspired by this morning's encounter, I've driven nine minutes north of the university to Meanwood Park to meet Linda Jenkinson, who's an urban birder, and I'm told she'll be able to open my eyes to a hidden but thriving urban avian world. It's a beautiful park. The area in front of me is sort of grassy with paths crisscrossed, and then looking over, there's a lot of really nice mature trees. And behind that is a bank of daffodils that Wordsworth would be very excited to see. There's a lady standing over here by the cafe. Hello, you must be Linda. I am. Hello, Kay. Lovely to meet you. You too. This is a glorious spot. It's absolutely wonderful. Lots of people use the park here. People running, cycling, dog walking, but most people don't realise how fantastic it is for bird watching. My day job's outdoors, so I know a little bit about birds, but probably not as much as I should. So I'm hoping you might be able to teach me something today. OK, well, if we go sit over there, maybe I can give you a whistle-stop tour of one of my workshops. Great, let's go. OK. OK, well, if you're a complete beginner, there's four things I really need to advise people on to start off with. That's books, maybe. Get yourself a decent book. Yeah. Binoculars, of course, because you can see birds flying around all the time, but you need to see the detail. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then one fantastic thing that you can get now is a decent app. There are some that are very good for reference, mm -hmm. especially for things like birdsong as well. And the last thing is, is you really need to know what to wear mm -hmm. because the last thing you want is to be freezing cold or soaking wet. So gloves, scarves, hats, that kind of thing. OK, so I think I've just given you a heads up on what you're going to need to get started. So shall we have a little walk? Oh, yeah, let's. Fantastic. With this particular park, we've got some conifers, yew trees, um, some pines, and that means that we get even more diversity. So things like coal tip, which got a nice little stripe down the back of its head, and goldcrest as well. And they're teeny tiny, aren't they, goldcrest? It's crest. our smallest bird. Very, very fidgety and fluttery and does lots of fly catching. Well, did you hear the black cat then? It's the one that's going... Just, yes! <laughs> I can't do a very good impression, but it's very, very fluty, very fast, and they've only just arrived. Believe it or not, this is probably one of the best places to find birds. There's bramble, there's lower sort of scrubby stuff, there's obviously a bit of cherry in there, but it is, it's really, really dense. This is what birds need in order to be able to thrive. So these brambles, they contain lots of insects, but as soon as you clear it all away, then you're not going to get the birds. This is Chiff Chaff that's singing here. This is one of our earliest migrants. You can just see it yeah, up here, just right, there. right above us. That likes really tall trees. It sings this chip, 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 yeah. chip, chip sound. Chiff Chaff. Yeah. <laughs> But it's actually nesting in this bramble scrub, okay. really low down. We're going to walk over to the stream. So this is one of the good places to see kingfisher. Oh, wow. So if we sit down on this bench here, we might be lucky. See that flash of blue? 
So kingfishers are potentially going to be on this spot here because we've got some still water mm -hmm. that you can actually see the bottom. Yeah. It will sit on a little perch that's overhanging the water, wait for the fish to come by and then plop straight in and then out again. Why don't we just have a few seconds of quiet and see if we can see one flying by. Those kingfishers seem to be eluding us. Why you might not see a kingfisher unless it's right in front of you is that they're not really blue. There's no blue pigment in the kingfisher feathers at all. Wow. The way that the feathers are made up, it refracts the light and you actually see the blue spectrum as you're looking at them. That's amazing. I did not know that. It's great to be able to come out to a park like this, but obviously not everybody can get out to places like this. So if you're stuck at home or you know, you're know you in a flat, is the ways you can still get involved and watch the birds that are local to you? If you just put up things like bird boxes, site them in the right place so they're not going to get too hot during the summer months, have some nice untouched areas where birds can nest. So a typical example of that is one of my urban birding colleagues, Mary Beth, who's managed to change a two metres square piece of concrete into a fantastic wildlife haven. I've made my way to the other side of Leeds and as Linda suggested, I've come to meet Mary Beth. And I'm assuming this is probably her garden because it looks like a lovely little haven for wildlife. It's quite a small space, but there's loads packed into it. There's trees and bird feeders everywhere, little hedgehog house, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Hello, Rebirth. Hello, Kate. What a lovely, lovely garden you've got. Thank you so much. In you go. Would you like a drink? Fab. I'll put that on for you now. I have to say, I absolutely love the decor of your house. There's just nature everywhere. There's bees and birds <laughs> and everything. It's absolutely amazing. It's a back-to-back -back house, which is quite a traditional house in Leeds in Yorkshire. It's a really small space, and as a consequence, we don't have like lots of gardens in these houses. But as you can see with my neighbours and myself, we make the most of the small space. Thank there you, you go, cup much. of tea. Perfect, thank you. It's lovely sitting here on your very comfy couch, but it's a really perfect view. You've got it set up of your feeders and the birds outside. It does make you feel like you're in a sort of cinema watching a wildlife documentary in front of us. So what species do you get? I'm really lucky, actually. I get lots of different birds visiting. I have like a little colony of house sparrows that visit and they've got the blackbirds, the robins, the great tits. So quite common, really, but still very much appreciated. I've also had a common white throat visiting, which I never expected to see. And I've also had flock of red poles visiting, which are really striking little finches. And again, I never expected to see those in my, you know, my little Leeds yard. For the last couple of years, it's really had a very profound effect on me having this small green space. That first lockdown in 2020, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. When you've kind of been presented with something like that, you really do start to consider your mortality a lot more. And in doing so, you start to really think about what matters to you the most and what, what you want to do with your life. And for me, what mattered to me the most was being outside and being around nature, but I couldn't do that because we were in a lockdown. 
I had my first of two surgeries, followed by a few months of chemotherapy and then followed by radiotherapy. So I kind of lost that year to cancer treatment, which meant that there was days when I physically was so unwell, I couldn't really move off the settee. But I had my birds visiting, so, you know, it was so important to me to have that view. My mum actually was the one who got me my window bird feeder because she said, while you're on the sofa, you know, recovering from your surgery, you can watch the birds more clearly when they're right there on the windows. Me and my mum have our shared passion for birding. That was a present from her that was very appreciated and her way of connecting back with me as well because we couldn't see one another and that was very, very tough. Straight away, it was kind of really obvious to me that if I continued to get out as much as I could on my good days and be around nature, that would keep me, keep me going and keep me kind of feeling positive. And then even on those days when I was too unwell to move, really, I could still see the birds in the garden. It was a hard time for everyone then to add something like that on top of it. And then, as you say, they're not being able to connect with your sort of real family, for want of a better word. I suppose having a sort of little avian family was kind of the best thing you could have in that situation when you can't actually physically meet your human family. The birds in my garden do sort of feel like family in a way. You know, I was seeing them every day. I was putting food out for them. We had that relationship. It's that connection with nature, you know. It does feel very personal every night. I would be up sometimes very late making sure the hedgehog had visited. Things like that, it's so silly. It's like, I need to go to bed now, but I want to make sure the hedgehog's had its teeth. It is, it's just such a nice thing to have, literally so close to home, right outside your doorstep. So can you give me a tour of your garden? Of course. What have you got? Yes. <laughs> the favourite food here is usually the sunflower seeds. Yeah. All kind of the birds really enjoy those, particularly the blue tits and the great tits. Mm -hmm also the suet feeders yeah. for the robins and the blackbirds. I also put mealworms out. We have the little suet balls here, which the long-tailed tits really like. Aww. I've also got a little bee house oh, just yeah. over there. The solitary bees. Yes, my favourite type of bees. I even have some red mason bees in some of the brickwork. A couple more weeks and they'll start to emerge as well. It's amazing what you can do with such a small space. It really is, yeah. I would never have imagined we could have all of what we have here in this little, little concrete box. Mary thank you so much for showing me around this beautiful little oasis of calm. It's been lovely meeting you, an absolute pleasure. Oh, you too. Take Thanks care. very much. When I was told I was coming to Leeds for the day, you don't really think about it as somewhere to come to see wildlife. But what's been really special today is meeting people who not only are really passionate about the city that they live and work in, but are really passionate about the nature that's here. From seeing the peregrines to listening to the black cats and the chiff chaffs, and then obviously coming out with Mary Beth and listening to her talk about how important that connection with nature has been to her personally and a very difficult journey that she's been on the last few years. It really makes you appreciate that no matter where you are, Nature is literally at your fingertips. If you make a home for it, if you make space for it, if you take the time to look for it, you'll find it. And that connection with nature is just so important to all of us. Thanks for listening to the National Trust podcast. 
If you've been inspired by this podcast and would like to find out more about birdwatching or ways to encourage wildlife into your garden, follow the links in our show notes. To make sure you're notified of every new episode of the National Trust podcast, please follow us on your favourite podcast app, where we'd appreciate your ratings and reviews too. Find out more about audio programmes from the National Trust at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. And until next time, from me, Kate Martin, goodbye. From birds to bugs and bats, give nature a safe haven with the National Trust Garden Wildlife Range from CJ Wildlife. Head to birdfood.co.uk forward slash national trust to find quality homes, foods and feeders for your garden visitors.